it's complicated because it's a it's a very large topic um energy system integration and there are many different aspects to it and not everyone is expert in all the different aspects so you have people who are expert in energy networks people who are expert in storage people in the generation technologies um, there are also sort of behavioral aspects to the way that people uh, organize their purchases of cars or or um, solar panels and their roofs, which are also super important for the sort of momentum behind the energy transition. This summer, climate change has finally made it back into the public discussion in Germany. Already in the last episode on climate change, Rüdiger Eichel and I spoke about Fridays for Future and how the results of the election for the European Parliament reflected the increased awareness for environmental topics in the European Union. Rüdiger Eichel's specialty is the development of power-to-X technologies for the production of synthetic fuels or hydrogen gas using electricity from renewable sources. You should go back and search for Energiewende on our website www.scienceforprogress.eu. In this episode, we will talk about different distribution systems and how to balance the fluctuating power production from renewable sources. There are many variables and options to consider. But the good news is that a carbon-neutral or almost carbon-neutral economy in Germany should be possible. And if it is possible for Germany, Europe's biggest economy, highly industrialized, very much reliant on fossil fuels for power production and fading out nuclear power as well, every country should be able to achieve this. And this is the reason we keep our eyes on Germany and the Energiewende. As always, you will find a summary of this episode on our website, www.scienceforprogress.eu. And if you're a supporter, you can listen to the whole conversation on www.patreon.com slash It's really worth a try, if you ask me. I am, by the way, opening these extended episodes to everyone with a 7-month delay. To date, extended episodes 9 to 23 are available to the public. Episode 23, by the way, is the quite popular episode with Lars Dietrich called Don't Sleep Faster, where we talk about whether you should listen to recommendations by celebrities regarding sleeping habits. You can find the direct links in the respective show notes on our website. I am your host, Dennis Eckmeyer. And you're listening to episode 36 of the Science for Societal Progress podcast. Hi, my name's Tom Brown. I'm a researcher at the Karlsruhe Institute of Technology. And I have a um, research group here looking at energy system modeling. So Tom Brown studies how we could manage our energy needs across the country and beyond. Why is this such a crucial problem? The networks are playing a very important role in the energy system, bringing power from generators to consumers. Um, so they're very important, particularly for renewables, because often the sites where you have very good renewable generation, say uh, wind near the coastline or even offshore wind, um, you need networks then to bring that energy to the consumers. So if you take Germany as an example, there's lots of uh, wind in the north and east and offshore wind in the North Sea, um, but then there are very big um, consumers of electricity in the, the south and the west, for example. So you need networks then to bring the energy to where uh, it's consumed. 
And they're already playing a sort of critical role at the moment because um, there isn't sufficient network capacity in Germany to bring that energy to from the wind in the north to the load in the south um, during some critical hours of the year. So it's, it's already a sort of critical infrastructure. One of the main critiques the German Energiewende faces is that they also want to get rid of nuclear power. The argument is that nuclear power provides a continuously stable baseline power level, whereas renewables, in particular wind and photovoltaic, fluctuate a lot with time of day and seasons. Is this the main problem you are addressing with the modeling approach? Doing different, it's doing several different things actually. It's doing a balancing in space, so bringing the power from where it's plentiful to maybe the south of Germany where we don't have so much renewable energy uh, during the winter. I mean, in the south of Germany, you have very good, uh, a lot of um, solar plants, for example, but they don't produce as much in the winter uh, as in the summer. Um, you don't have that much wind and you, you maybe also have some uh, biomass plants a lot in the south. So it's, it's doing one thing, bringing energy from one place to the other, One thing it can also do is um, balance um, wind, for example, uh, between different locations. So you could have situations where the wind is very strongly blowing in uh, the, U the United Kingdom, uh, but not so much in Germany. So you can use the network to actually balance the wind um, as well. So you can sort of smooth the wind production um, over the whole continent, because typically the wind conditions aren't uniform over over the whole area, but there's maybe high wind in one area and, and a low wind in the other. So you can use the networks to um, do some of that um, balancing if you have enough capacity. What does this mean to build up capacity in the energy systems? More power lines? So you build um, extra transmission lines, and then these transmission lines would be used by the market to um, sell electricity uh, from areas um, so that you transport electricity from areas where the electricity is very cheap to areas with very high prices, and then the network operator sort of um, cashes in um, on the difference. So it's actually sort of balancing out then prices. So you'll have, price, you'll have electricity exported from cheap areas, and it will typically be cheap because there's lots of cheap, plentiful wind being generated there. And then you export it to a higher price area where the prices have been pushed up because there isn't so much cheap re renewables. And, and then you get sort of everyone benefiting from the trade-off. So the, the generator in the, the cheaper area gets to sell their electricity at a higher price and the consumer uh, in the high price area then gets a, a lower price for their electricity. So we could take maybe an example of uh, Denmark and, and Norway. So when Denmark has lots of wind producing, it can export that power to Norway and the Norwegians can consume this uh, cheap power and they don't need then so much of their own hydroelectricity. But when Denmark doesn't have that much wind, then they can, um, reverse the power flow on the line and import then cheap hydroelectric power from uh, Norway uh, to cover their um, demand. So you can balance the resources between different regions with the network, just like you do tradings. So the trick would be to have a pan-European power grid in order to always be able to get power from somewhere? That would be definitely one of the options. So you really could imagine a system where you're sort of balancing out the wind between different parts of Europe and then filling in the gaps with uh, hydroelectricity from areas with lots of hydro like Scandinavia um, or the Alpine region. 
Um, the big problem with that, and this, this has been suggested and discussed for a long time, but the big problem with that is you need a lot more power lines than you have today. And there's been big acceptance problems when building new power lines, um, more or less all across the continent. So there's been um, concerns um, from areas affected by planned transmission lines in Germany, uh, also in France and the border between France and Spain, more or less wherever you have planned transmission lines going through relatively dense areas, um, people are concerned about landscape impacts, um, also some environmental impacts as well. So that's the sort of um, problem with these very um, network heavy um, scenarios. Wind turbines also are, are seeing acceptance problems uh, in densely populated countries like Germany, um, also the UK, which has already stopped subsidizing onshore wind because of concerns about um, acceptance. So yeah, onshore wind is also um, seeing some problems with acceptance. And that leaves you then in a country like Germany, um, you can use whatever onshore wind that you have and whatever sustainable biomass and hydroelectricity you have. But then if you really want to decarbonize or, or reduce the emissions from the rest, then you need to go for solar or offshore wind. So offshore also sees many fewer um, um, acceptance problems and, and also lower um, um, environmental impacts as well. But offshore power generation demands additional power lines, which, as we said, are also not welcome. And this is indeed a major problem that German politics are not addressing well. I recorded this conversation several months ago. In the meanwhile, the public discussion about climate action in Germany has been intensifying, with the recent global climate strike being the latest climax. On the same day, the German government put together a climate package, which was supposed to finally get effective climate action done. The result is being called disastrous by representatives of Scientists for Future, a very large group of leading scientists from German-speaking countries that was founded in support of the Fridays for Future students' movement. Most importantly, the price that the government will put on carbon emissions, not before 2021, is only one-fifth of what scientists calculated would be the necessary minimum to induce behavioral changes in population and industry. Without such an incentive, they say, all other presented actions would have no effect. And on top of this, the government decided that no wind turbines shall be built less than a kilometer from a settlement. In Bavaria, this distance will remain to be 1.5 kilometers a regulation that already effectively halted all wind turbine building projects this year. Tom Brown called scenarios where onshore wind turbines as well as overland power lines are both not viable options, worst case scenarios. Unfortunately, there are options, so it's not it's not um, it's not a, a problem. It just makes the system a bit more um, expensive. So, for example, you can put the transmission lines underground, so you can bury them under the ground, which tends to be um, more expensive. But then you have um, lower landscape impact. You could also look at um, sector coupling which is uh, one of the concepts for um, reducing load in the network. It's not just about um, reducing emissions and electricity. We also have to look at other sectors that produce emissions like uh, transport and um, how we heat our buildings and also the industrial sectors. So we also need to um, reduce emissions in those. And uh, many of the concepts for that um, require electrification. 
that seems like a bit of a nightmare initially because you have a whole lot of extra electricity demand at the same time when your network is already stressed. But you can actually use flexible storage from these other sectors to balance some of this variability of the renewables. So what you could do, for example, is you could use the electricity to produce hydrogen by electrolyzing water. You could do that close to the offshore wind turbines and then transport that hydrogen through the gas grid or with a dedicated hydrogen pipeline to the south and then consume it in the south. And then you wouldn't have to worry about the impact of the transmission line. You could put the gas pipeline underground and the gas pipelines generally have a much higher throughput capacity than a typical transmission line. So that would be one of the concepts for overcoming this problem with lack of um, transmission grid. Well, we didn't talk about how people would like the option of having a poster child of an explosive gas being transported via pipeline through their backyards. I'm not so sure if it ranges above or below power lines. At least I think they'd range above medium-sized nuclear reactors, which some people suggest we should be building everywhere instead of addressing the power fluctuation problems with less radioactive means. Also, making hydrogen gas is not very efficient. Yeah, you have, you have some losses when you do the conversion. There are definitely uh, downsides. There's several different ways of looking at this. So, I mean, the, the value of having that power in the South at times when there isn't enough local renewables is high enough that you can basically afford to have these efficiency losses from the conversion. What you can also do is not really, is you can use that uh, waste heat from the conversion process to maybe heat your um, local building. So you could feed that heat into a district heating network. So actually the loss isn't that great because you're actually really coupling the different sectors together. So you're doing a conversion to gas and you're also getting some heat out and you can use that then that heat to heat your buildings, for example. And on the way back, when you're converting back to electricity, say, with a fuel cell, you can also use the waste heat from that process for heating as well in your buildings. So you have this very, very strongly coupled electricity, heating, and gas system where you, you're trying to uh, use everything super efficiently. And that's one of the benefits of looking at this integrated perspective where you uh, look at all the different energy sectors. So a stupid question for maybe, <laughs> but what do you do with all this heat in summer? There's a couple of answers to that question. So one of the, the good things about sector coupling is you have very cheap storage options. And that's also true for heat. So you could store the heat in, for example, very large hot water tanks and store that heat in the summer and then use it in the winter. So they do this already in some projects in Denmark where you have connected to your district heat network a giant like a swimming pool, but much bigger, like a kind of football field um, filled with water, um, sort of underground and very well insulated. And then you can store this thermal energy in this hot water until the winter. There's also concepts where you heat up rocks, for example, and store the, uh, the thermal energy that way as well. So excess electricity can be stored for later use with power to gas or power to liquid technology, about which we heard more in the previous episode on the Energiewende. You can make, for example, hydrogen gas out of water. We also learned that this is very inefficient, meaning that a lot of energy is lost as heat in every process in which it is transferred. Making gas or liquids using electricity and then using those to make electricity again later 
maybe somewhere else, means there are at least two points where you might lose a lot of energy. Tom suggested that all this excess heat could be stored for later use as well in centralized heating systems. So that's that's the wonderful thing about sector coupling is that um, if you just look at the electricity sector, then when you talk about storage, you're talking about batteries, for example, which are a relatively expensive way of, of storing energy. But if you look in the other sectors like gas or heating, there you have really, really very cheap storage opportunities. So in gas, you can store the gas in big um, caverns underground and thermally you can store then thermal energy um, very cheaply as well. This system is becoming very complicated very quickly, it seems. How difficult will it be to develop and implement all of these technologies and systems? Well, um, if you actually look at these technologies, many of them are already implemented. So um, if you look, for example, at the thermal energy storage, you already have that being done in very, very large water tanks in district heating networks in Denmark, uh, also in smaller tanks here in Germany. So that technology is super simple and it's already there. Um, if you look at gas storage technology, we're already storing gas in very, very large volumes. So uh, Europe has a, a gas capacity of just over 1,000 uh, terawatt hours. It's a unit of uh, energy and our um, yearly electricity energy uh, uh, consumption in Europe is about three and a half thousand terawatt hours per year. So it's already like a third, in principle, a third of the electricity consumption um, is available or an, an amount equivalent to a third of the electricity consumption is already available in gas storage. You just have to be able to convert the electricity uh, into uh, gas form first. And, and that's the step that's really missing at the moment, I would say. It's, it's, it's using uh, electrolysis at large scale uh, to make hydrogen or further hydrocarbons from electricity is the sort of missing link that's not being done um, at very large scales um, at the moment. And that's why the German government is investing a lot of um, money into um, research projects and startups that are um, looking at building up capacity in um, power to gas, it's called, taking electricity and electrolyzing water to make hydrogen. And then you can further convert to, make, to um, take it to methane or other sort of liquid hydrocarbons as well. So this is what I would say is the, the major area where we're missing um, the large-scale deployment of these technologies at the moment, and it's one of the really critical technologies that it's important that we show and demonstrate it at large scale. So what's your favorite scenario? <laughs> so um, that's a great question because it's one of the things that we try and emphasize in our research is that there's more than one scenario. Not only is it feasible and possible to, to do this energy transition, there are actually different options here. So we could go for an option where we have quite a lot of transmission network expansion, um, which would be probably on the cheaper scale of things, and then we need less storage and um, less tight sector coupling. Or we could go in a, and that would be a relatively centralized um, sort of structure where you have big power flows from country to country uh, through the electricity network and big offshore wind parks and so on. Um, or you could look at scenarios which have um, less interregional exchange to the electricity grid, more sort of decentralized scenarios where each region is, is sort of self-sufficient. 
and um, that would tend to cost a little bit more, at least according to our simulations, but um, would probably have a higher social acceptance and would have a higher sort of local buy-in because there would be more sort of decentralization of, of ownership of the energy assets as well. I mean, my feeling is that it's probably going to be somewhere in the middle. Um, going fully decentral um, is a difficult thing to do, particularly because of these seasonal variations of, say, solar. So if you're really relying just on solar energy in northern Europe, where it's dark in the winter and you have a high um, demand for heating for your buildings and so on, um, it's not so attractive because then you have to really shift large amounts of energy. Um, wind, fortunately, in northern Europe tends to blow more strongly in the uh, in the winter, which aligns very nicely with the heating demand. So you want to have wind integrated there. Also, lots of offshore as well, because it tends to feed in a bit more smoothly. And so you do want to have at least some of this sort of network infrastructure as well um, to benefit from um, that wind feed in. So I'd say some sort of intermediate solution where you may you may see some some amount of decentralization. Uh, to increase acceptance in, in some sort of countryside regions, and then you would still have big axes of uh, power transfer to exploit, say, offshore wind and bring energy to sort of energy-intensive regions where there's a lot of industry which has a lot of demand for um, electricity and maybe also for hydrogen and other synthetic fuels as well. So I would say some sort of compromise. And what you see a lot of people doing sometimes is doing very strong optimizations in one direction or the other and exploring the space in between where you have partially centralized and partially decentralized i think is much more realistic and, and much more interesting on another note suggesting a very complicated solution that has many different variables certainly is exciting for us scientists but it may overwhelm lay people and either increase the feeling of uncertainty or cause them to lose interest in following these ideas. But this would not be good because... Some of these trade-offs really have to be um, considered by the public because when you're talking about um, making infrastructure choices, maybe you don't want to build lots of overhead transmission lines. That That's fine if that's what your preference is, but it's going to make the whole system more expensive for the whole country or, or the whole continent. So there are sort of distributional questions here. Maybe one region doesn't want a transmission line. And if that makes electricity more expensive for everybody, then the costs get distributed uh, to everybody. So it's, it's, it's often really a political question um, what the right scenario is or what, what politics and what ordinary people think that then influences uh, which way we go. At this point, we talked about some interesting things that we also covered in the previous Energiewende episode, including the desert tech idea of producing energy in the Saharan desert, carbon dioxide sequestration, etc. But also some new aspects of the energy system. Sadly, these parts didn't make it into this episode, but if you're interested, there is the extended episode on Patreon, which you can access by becoming a supporter www.patreon.com slash cypherprogress Thanks to everybody who is already supporting us.
But um, if you're dealing with the variability of wind and solar, I mean, they're varying both in time and in space. And you kind of have a choice about whether you want to balance that variation uh, in time or space. So you can balance it in space by balancing different wind production in one region with another. And, and sort of storage is sort of doing the other side of things where you try and balance it in time. So you're trying to take um, energy from one period of time and, and feed it in another. So they're sort of complementary and they, they, they can also work together. And in our models, we're often playing them against each other. So we're saying, are we going to import um, wind from northern Germany to southern Germany? Or are we going to balance maybe in time and say we're going to store lots of um, uh, energy in the summer when there's lots of solar and use it in the winter? So you're often sort of playing these things uh, against each other in the models. So playing the variability in time against space. And the way you choose your technologies depends a bit on the, the sort of scale of the variability. So if you're trying to balance a, a solar panel in uh, Spain where there's lots of sun, but you have a daily cycle, then you maybe want a, a, a battery because that's a sort of short-term storage that can balance these variations on a few hours. And then um, if you're in a region with very um, lots of wind and it varies a bit more slowly, so maybe two or three weeks, then you want a longer-term form of storage that can store it for um, at least a couple of days, if not weeks, and that would then be something like your hydrogen storage. So a lot of what we're doing is sort of matching uh, different technologies to different scales of the variability of uh, wind and solar, because usually wind and solar are sort of dominating the energy production uh, in these models. And what, what are the, the data that go into these models? So we have a lot of um, weather data that goes in. So we can look historically how the weather conditions have been uh, in Europe over the last 30, 40 years. And then we can run the model against these weather conditions and make sure that the energy demand is always met, um, whatever the weather conditions are. So even in the most extreme circumstance where you have low wind and low solar over the whole continent, we can make sure that we're still meeting the energy demand. And that would work? Uh, that works in, in, in our models, definitely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, and um, sometimes it's more expensive depending on the scenarios that we have. Um, I mean, more expensive than today. It, it sort of depends how far we want to push the emissions down. So typically pushing the emissions down, uh, we can get very, very cost-effective systems, maybe even che cheaper than today given the decrease in cost of wind and solar. But when you push down to 80% reduction or 90% reduction or 100% reduction, the costs tend to go up because you have to guarantee security of supply also in those situations with very low wind and solar. And so you need maybe a lot of storage to cover those periods. And that tends to push the price up or the cost of the whole system. And then depending on the assumptions you've used, it could work out a bit more expensive than today's system. As far as the direct costs go, um, if you look in a bigger picture with all the indirect costs of the environmental damage of fossil fuels and the health costs from um, air pollutants and so on, then these uh, strongly renewable systems look, look super cheap. There's like a no-brainer um, to go then for these highly renewable systems when you consider the health and uh, environmental costs the cost of, you know, breaking the planet and its climate system. Is, so I've heard experts say infinite. So Tom Brown uses computational modeling to figure out how we can combine different technologies and distribution strategies in order to achieve a carbon neutral economy. We've learned that there are many options to balance overproduction at one place or time with underproduction at other places and times. 
wherever local production of power and direct transmission of electricity through overhead transmission lines is difficult or impossible for whatever reason, more expensive alternatives need to be implemented. Using power-to-x technology, energy could be stored in gas or synthetic fuels. In certain situations, those could be the better storage option than using batteries, despite the lower efficiency. However, this may involve building new gas pipelines. On the other hand, the inefficiency of power-to-x technologies could be reduced if we were able to use the excess heat efficiently. For example, to heat the buildings in the neighborhood of such plants. Thankfully, at least the storage of gas and heat is simpler and cheaper to achieve than storing electricity in batteries. It is us, the people living in Germany, who need to decide which changes we are willing to accept and live with in the future. To a certain degree, our not-in-my-backyard attitude may be one of the main reasons why electricity and, in extension, the whole increasingly electrified industry may become more expensive than it needs to be. In any case, not striving for a carbon-neutral economy globally will ultimately cost us everything. For the summary and links for further readings and to the complete conversation on Patreon, find the show notes to this episode on www.scienceforprogress.eu. Do you still have questions about how the economy can achieve carbon neutrality? Let me know and I will find us another expert to answer them. Contact me by email info at scienceforprogress.eu or on social media at scienceforprogress for Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. I thank you very much for listening. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Ciao. Have a nice evening. Bye.